I hope you noticed the common theme that Brother Jeff led us in singing this morning. We sang a lot that focused on the blood of Jesus. That is, for one reason at least, we'll be taking communion at the very end of the service, but I think it's appropriate for our text as well this morning. Let me read a a few verses of Scripture that won't be on the screen, but you see if you can figure out what each of these have in common. They have a couple of things in common. In this world, you will have tribulation. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I'm not really sure why Christianity has become the power of positive thinking movement that it has in recent days. Particularly when we think of the verses that we just read and the songs that we have just sang. Since around the 1920s, much of the Christian music on our radios and even some in our hymn books, they have a strange focus on pepping your step, Things are just getting better and better. I'm feeling I'm living on the bright side brand of Christianity that is totally not what is depicted in Scripture. (laughs) These are verses which I just read. They're ones that we don't read very often in the Bible. They're not many of ours. um, You know, this is my life verse. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's not many life verses. Yet in each one of these, I think you'll notice that what they all have in common is this assurity that you will face persecution. But even more than that, if your New Testament is like mine and it has red letters, each of those were spoken by Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. There is joy in the midst of sorrow. There is real joy. There's not a slap, a grin on it. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Fake joy. There is real life-giving joy in faith in Christ. But I fear that in our Christian witness, too often we try to sell Christianity as a, as a way of life which will make life easier, make it more bearable. And that is certainly not true. In fact, may I be so bold as to say that following Christ will make your life more complicated and less safe? Let that settle in for just a second. We've thought about them for the last several weeks in our Wednesday Bible study. The disciples, the majority of these men were fishermen. They led good, simple lives centered on family and bringing in fish every week. Jesus comes along And every single one of them, down to the man, suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. The vast majority of them even facing martyrdom. It's the same with the Apostle Paul. This man was introduced to us as a man who was on the fast track of life, of prestige and academia. His course was set for ease and comfort. He was 
planning on teaching the law to eager followers of Judaism for the rest of his life. Then he's blinded by the light of Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life turns upside down. By his own testimony in 2 Corinthians 11, he's thrown in and out of prison numerous times. He is flogged, lashed, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked three times, stolen from, left for dead, impoverished to the point of nakedness. You name it, Paul faced it. We had better be careful with our testimonies urging people to give your life to Christ and everything will just fall into place. In the grand scheme of things, throughout the great arc of your life, eternity in view, that is the truth. But hear me. No. Hear Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation. It is the lot and life for every Christian. Everyone. I fear too often that it's our misrepresentation of the Christian life which discourages people who are new to the faith to the point that they sign on so quickly to follow Jesus and then something bad happens and they think, I must have done this wrong or this isn't what it's chalked up to be and so they abandon faith. The latter being worse than the former. Now, I believe the best thing that you can do is to give your life to Christ. Submit to His will wholly and completely. When you do, there is no telling the blessings upon blessings that will be heaped to your account. Your relationship with Christ and the following of biblical principles, it will change your marriage. It will reorganize your priorities. It will aid in your child rearing. It will adjust your finances. It will give you purpose, hope, and joy. It will, properly applied, genuinely lived out, your life with Christ will do all that. But that joy, hope, purpose, financial shift, priority repositioning, all of that, it will come at a high price. For every couple that came to Jesus and had their marriage restored, I think I could equally match stories of spouses who hated the life change of the other and vacated the marriage. For everyone. For every family that testifies about the orderliness that biblical principles brought into their home. I could probably give you just as many accounts of heartbreaking rebellion that is still ongoing. Their stories aren't done. There are chapters to be written filled with God's grace, but at this point, rebellion has settled in and they are far from God. I want us to have a healthy balance, a healthy view of all of this as we read Ezra chapter 4 this morning because up until now in the story, The trajectory of the account of these captives who've been released to go back home and resettle their hometown of Jerusalem has been positive, good, helpful. Cyrus, who is the king who released them from Babylon, he pretty much completely funded the endeavor. He gives them grants enough to leave everything that they were familiar with in Babylon to return to the ruins of Jerusalem and rebuild. The the nation has undergone a bit of revival as they set the altar in its place and they begin to sacrifice sincerely and obediently according to the law of God. 
They are quickly setting to the task at hand and rebuilding the temple. And with every block laid, there is rejoicing as the people of God relish in what He is doing in them and for them. It's been a good thing, Ezra 1-3. through Last week, we left off with Ezra when they finished the foundations of the temple, a great shout went up from all of them. The young men rejoiced. The old men wept. But both, I believe, were praising God. The shout, Scripture says, was so loud in verse 13 of Ezra 3 that the sound was heard afar off. You may have not seen it last week, but that really is a little bit of foreshadowing of what's to come. That shout was heard by the surrounding city-states of Jerusalem. And they, in turn, we read in Ezra 4, are not happy about the prospect of Jerusalem being built back up again. Some of them can remember the powerhouse that Jerusalem once was, and if it's rebuilt, then that means that their own cities will suffer financial loss. So it's here in Ezra 4, for the first time in the story, That the people of God face real adversity, real opposition to their obeying the will of God. Read it once more with me, verses 1 and 2. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and they said to them, seems so innocent, let us build with you for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, right off the bat, you might struggle a little with this historical account because that doesn't seem like a whole lot of adversity on the front end. It's like, we're a, it's like if our church were in a building project and, I don't know, a crew of construction workers just happened upon our church and they said, hey, We're Christians too. We'll do all the work for free if you help us, if you let us help you build. I gotta tell you, I know enough of us how frugal or cheap we are. Take my hammer. (laughs) Please, yeah, here are the keys to the bulldozer. Please, yeah, absolutely, go ahead. We would, without asking, do it. But I hope you know that not all help is actually. We have the advantage of history on our side to know only four words into the chapter that this group of people who are coming to Zerubbabel to offer free labor, they're not friendly as they would want you to believe. They are, in fact, adversaries, enemies. Wouldn't that be a great superpower to be able right off the bat to know if someone is being genuine with you. Some of you, I think, have that, and I, I, I wish I did. Or maybe I don't. It seems like sometimes it might be more of a curse than it is a blessing. A good friend said yesterday that he was so optimistic that when you ask him if the glass is half empty or half full, he just assumes that you've already drunk half of it, <laughs> that you've been blessed with too big a cup, or that the drink really wasn't that good and you were done with it anyway. Why would you want any more? He was so optimistic. He was so positive. That's a great blessing. But the reason that we aren't like that usually is because we have had too many people in our life show up 
wanting to help, wanting to help, but were in fact our enemies. I'm sure that we could have a testimony service dedicated to that. It wouldn't be healthy for us to do that, but we could spend a lot of time with it. Well, here come the neighbors, smiling from ear to ear with forced smiles, bringing gifts in hand, saying, here, let us help you build the temple. We worship God too. How does God's How do God's people respond? Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the political and spiritual leaders, they see through the facade in verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for God. But we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Am I alone in thinking Guys, that's a little harsh. They come bearing gifts. We know, again, hindsight being 2020, we know these are adversaries, but on the front end, why would they have such an objection to this? Don't read it historically with Ezra giving you insight into all these people being, in fact, enemies. What's the harm, Joshua? What's the harm, Zerubbabel, if we just let them lay some block? We could use some extra hands over here. Joshua, did you see the equipment that they brought with them? We could use that. Well, praise God for discerning leaders in your life. Praise God for discerning dads. Praise God for discerning heads of houses. Who said no. The spiritual gift of discernment that Paul references in 1 Corinthians 12.10, it isn't the flashiest, it's not the showiest of the gifts, but it is oftentimes the most necessary. Zerubbabel and Jeshua see through the insincerity and they don't take the bait. They see it for what it is. This is all a ploy to get these enemies in the door so that they can disrupt the progress of the rebuilding of the temple. Their claim, we seek your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him for years, in verse 2. It is mm, not the whole truth by a long stretch. This first opposition that the people of God are facing is the temptation to compromise. Hear me as we talk about compromise this morning for a second. 2 Kings 17, you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. It gives us the backstory of these exact people who supposedly worshipped Jehovah too. Without getting too bogged down in the historical account, the king of Assyria years ago had allowed these people to resettle these regions after he conquered them, but their pioneering attempts weren't going so well. So he believed in regional gods, and so he thought, well, if I just send somebody back there who teaches them how to worship the god of this area, this geographical area, all things will go well. So the Assyrian king sends an Israelite priest to go into the region of Samaria and to begin teaching them the word of God. 2 Kings 17.28 tells us, Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethal and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own. 
and put them in shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation and the cities which they dwelt. The rest of the chapter details what the worship of their own gods looked like, and it's not pretty at all. Verse 31 even reveals that they are involved in child sacrifice, all the while sacrificing to Jehovah God. We fear God. We fear Jehovah as we offer up our children as burnt sacrifices. Now, verse 32 of 2 Kings 17 says, So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Hey, Christian, be discerning. Be discerning. Not everything that claims to be Christian, not everything that has a Christian label or is published under a Christian publication is uh, a truly a Christian thing. Not everything that's played on a Christian radio station or is produced by a Christian production group is in fact Christ-like. This is strong, but if you don't think that the world has figured out, figured out how to market to us Christians, you're a fool, undiscerning, foolish, allowing them to come in and build, and what they are really doing is they are tearing down in your life. These, they are pros at this kind of thing. They are laughing all the way to the bank because we eat up their nonsense, everything that comes out that is a Christian label on it. And it's not. Hey, we fear God. We sacrifice to Him. Never mind that we believe that there are many ways to get to heaven. Forget about our treatment of Scripture as just another holy book. Don't mind our views on sexuality. You name it, the church has gotten into bed with it. But not Zerubbabel. Not Jeshua. They see rightly what this opposition is. It's an opportunity to compromise. You know, when the author of 2 Kings was writing about this group earlier, he made a strong statement. In verse 34, he writes, To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances. See, up until that point, the line was all the time in 2 Kings, they feared God, but they also sacrificed to other idols. Here, plainly and succinctly, he writes, they do not fear the Lord. No, they don't. Why could he say that? He could say that strong statement because they continued practicing their former rituals and they do not follow God's statutes and ordinances. It really doesn't matter if someone calls themselves or their organization Christian. If they are not following the ordinance of God as laid out in Scripture, they are not a Christian, period, full stop. You cannot say, I'm a Christian, but I do not believe in anything in the Bible. It's not possible. And here there's a group who says, we, we serve God just like you. No, you sacrifice to Him and about a billion other gods. Boy, 
why are you so judgmental this morning? Who hurt you this week? What pain are you working through? We are so skewed in our thinking that we have turned what I've just said into why so judgmental when in all actuality, it's just pure discernment. We could all do with a healthy dose of calling a spade a spade in the church today. Compromise is killing us. And I mean that as literally as I possibly can. It is carrying away many in its chokehold on the church. If you will compromise on the truths laid out in Scripture, then you are just even more of a target for the next form of opposition that the surrounding regions had in store for the people of God. Not just compromise. Now, They've moved into coercion. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they hold the line on compromise. Nope, you will not have a part with this. We see through your lies. You can't say, we believe in God, we sacrifice to God all while living your old life. You cannot do that. That is not Christianity. That's not belief in the one true God. So these, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they do not allow these people to help build the temple. And that is when the enemy's intentions really show out. Had they been able to rebuild the temple with them, they probably would have just subtly detoured the mission a little bit. You know, accidentally not mix the concrete right. Oh, oops. Accidentally build a few walls out of plum, maybe. Accidentally, I don't know, drop a few loads of bricks on Zerubbabel, just accidentally. Didn't mean to. Leaders didn't allow their involvement, so now they go to war. Forget the niceties. Forget the subtleties. Back to Ezra 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in their building, and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Did you get that? They discouraged, troubled, and frustrated them. Underline those three words in verses 4 and 5. They discouraged, troubled, and frustrated them. If you've got an old King James version, you actually have the most literal rendering of what verse 4 says when it says that they discouraged them. It says, they weakened their hands. Through one way or another, the enemies of God convinced the people of God, it's not worth building anymore. Why are you spending so much time building the temple of God? Hear me. Would you please hear me? The Lord's been hitting me upside the head with this for the last three days. I've had two six-hour-long meetings this weekend, and the common theme has been messages on discouragement. So apparently, I need it. And maybe you do too. Yesterday, I sat under two fellow pastors and their teaching, and, and one said it plainly. The devil loves a discouraged preacher. The devil loves a discouraged preacher. That was only pastor to pastor. But the same could be said of all Christians. The devil loves a discouraged Christian. I don't know how they did it. I don't know what tactic the enemies used to convince God's people to stop building. How did they weaken their resolve in their hands? How did they discourage them? Who knows? But they did. 
I don't know how the enemy is discouraging you. I don't see the specific tactic that he is using to convince you that it is not worth building or standing or worshiping or witnessing anymore, Christian. But hear me, he is a liar. He's a liar. Jesus told us in John 8, that when the devil speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature. He's speaking his native tongue because he is a liar and he's the father of lies. They weaken their hands with this discouragement. And it's possible that you are here this morning discouraged and you have too long been listening to the lies of the discourager, of the one who is opposing you. See him for who he is. He's a liar and he hates you. He loves you, keeping discouraged because it's there he keeps you in check. Discouragement. Verse four continues, they troubled them in their building. Now this word troubled, is, it's a really interesting one in the, in the original language, balach. It's the only time that it's used in the whole Bible, which is really interesting. Our editors have opted for a very generic translation, troubled. They troubled them in their building. Some scholars believe that this actually refers to like some covert operations, like the enemies would come in at night and they would actually tear down portions of what the Jews were building. That's a very big possibility. But the root of the word really has more to do with intimidation. In my mind's eye, I can see these city-states surrounding Jerusalem, not fighting them. That'd probably bring the military wrath of Cyrus down on them, but just standing there, armed, threateningly, just close enough. The Jews can see them while they're building. You insert your own application here. Do you feel intimidated in your walk of faith? It might be your workplace. It might even be your own home. On a national level, Christians have it so good. We have it so good. I hope you read Christian biographies of those who have come before us or who are even living in the church elsewhere today. It will put things into perspective real quick. A friend of mine and I, we have been listening to the story of a man by the name of Brother Yun recently. He's a leader of the house church movement in China today. The beatings, the broken bones, the starvation that this man has suffered over the last few decades, they are gut-wrenching. What we call persecution in America today would probably just cause every figure in church history to kind of sit back and really, that that's persecution? You really think that's persecution? But that doesn't mean that there's not intimidation going on. And sometimes it comes from the strangest places. Parents discouraging their kids from mission work. Spouses who don't like the godly principles that you're trying to live by. Church members who want comfort and convenience instead of actual kingdom-minded, word-centered, Jesus-focused ministries. 
Intimidation can come from some weird places. Let me tell you. Will you give in? One final thing. Ezra 4.5 says that the enemies of God go a step further. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. This frustration, it's not like our normal agitation that we face with I don't know, endless loads of laundry or something like that, cleaning out the garage just knowing that it's going to get messed up next weekend or something like that. Now, this refers to actual political pressure that the enemies of God wield against his people. Verses 6 through 23, they reveal letter-writing campaigns against them to several different kings throughout the years to try and keep them from building. These are threats. There, there is exaggeration in these letters. There are lies. Every single weapon that every single politician uses in his arsenal daily is used in verses 6 through 23. And the people of God finally They give in. Verse 24 says, Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They laid down the trowel. They stopped placing the stones. They stopped. God's people gave in. They folded. They threw in the towel. They fell into discouragement, intimidation, and frustration. Isn't that heartbreaking? I've read from nine different commentaries this week, and I'm still a little foggy on all the dates and timeline of it all. Some of you can set me straight afterwards, I'm sure. But the temple lay not even halfway built. A couple of walls may be erected. Rubble is all around for at least 16 years. They stopped doing what God called them to do. And I want this to sink in. I want you to hear the voice of your pastor who loves you and prays for you. Do not stop. Do not give in to compromise or coercion. Do not allow this world to intimidate or frustrate or discourage you to the point that you stop, that you start you cease building your life in Christ. I began the sermon this morning by reading from John 16, 33, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Those of you who know your Bibles know that that's only a partial reading of that verse. It ends gloriously. In this world, you will have tribulation But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Years are going to go by. The children of God are going to not build at all. The temple will continue to lay desolate in ruins without any building until God stirs the heart of one of His prophets named Zechariah. (laughs) Zechariah is going to stand before Zerubbabel And he is going to urge him to once again pick up a hammer and build. 
We know this verse, but we rarely see it in context. Zechariah 4.6 says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It is not by might, nor is it by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. If the Lord has called you to do it in His Word, He will, through His Spirit, not of your own energy or your own efforts, He will, through His Spirit, empower you, encourage you to take up a hammer and build your life on Christ. Every single one of us, you are faced with opposition as a Christian. Do not, Ren, hear me, do not give in. It is through His Spirit. Amen? Aren't you thankful that the Lord has blessed us with a church who will come around us and in moments of opposition will stand beside us? Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.